Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, February the 20th, 2023, President's Day, when America is celebrating its democratic presidents, where we are bathing or supposed to bathe in self-congratulation. Not everyone, though, is so self-congratulatory when it comes to the achievements of the American Republic. Although recently we've been doing a lot of shows on China and lots of people seem to suggest that America offers a more open, fairer, more democratic alternative to China. Even people in the progressive community in America, we did a show, for example, with Orville Schell, one of America's leading greatest sinologists. Um, he seems to suggest that America can offer China a democratic way forward. Some people believe that China is an enormous threat to the future of the world in civilizational terms, like the young journalist Isaac Stonefish. I think he's a little bit of a, a cold warrior. And last week we did a show with the former BBC correspondent in Beijing, Adam Brooks. He's written a historical book about how uh, the treasures, Chinese treasures of its forbidden city were saved. But even he is rather dark and depressing on Xi Jinping's China. Um, I'm not sure if my guest today, though, would necessarily agree. He's no defender of China, but he seems to put the Chinese economy and perhaps its political system in some ways in the same bucket as the American one. You all know his name, John Perkins. Uh, he's famous or infamous. He is the economic hitman. His books uh, on economic hitmen have done incredibly well. Uh, the first one, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which came out in 2004, was in the best-selling charts for over a year. Then he had a follow-up, New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And now he's come out with Confessions of an Economic Hitman, third edition, with uh, 13, and I'm quoting the, the cover, 13 explosive new chapters with a focus on China, China's EHM strategy, uh, uh, economic hitman strategy, and ways to stop uh, this global takeover. Uh, John is joining us from um, Bainbridge Island, just near Seattle. Uh, John, uh, welcome. You're a living legend. Uh, I've never spoken to a, an economic hitman before. You look like a bit of a cuddly one. Uh, uh, you, you, certainly, um, you certainly look good as an economic hitman. In all seriousness, John, is there any difference in your view as a critic of American capitalism over the last 20 years? Is there any significant difference between the American system and the Chinese system? There is, actually. There's a lot of similarities and some differences, Andrew. Thank you. And um, incidentally, I, I would say that I disappoint a lot of people when they meet me. They say, an you don't look like an economic hitman. And I don't know what that means. Am I supposed to hit my house? Maybe I'm supposed to look like this or something. You know, I don't know. Anyway, um, you know, a major difference is, in, and I'm speaking now from the viewpoint of leaders of what we might call lower income countries, countries in Africa, Latin America, parts of the Middle East and Asia, 
I spent a lot of time in these countries. I just came back from Latin America. I speak Spanish fluently. I, I meet with leaders in those countries. And from their perspective, there's a, there's a, there are some several major differences. And again, as you pointed out, I certainly do not want to defend China. China's doing some horrible things in the world. Uh, we've, we've, we've got to address some of these issues. But from the perspective of the leader of a country that needs to progress, it needs to help it's hundreds of thousands, millions in many countries of very poor people uh, and develop the country's resources, doesn't have the technology to develop the resources itself, the mining and, and, and drilling for oil and all these various things that actually mainly in my book is that we've got to turn a lot of this around and, and, and transform it, what we call a death economy to a life economy. But in any case, these countries are looking for help. And they, if they can turn to China or the United States, they have a couple of decisions to make. And one is that when they accept aid or loans, rather, from the United States, there are a lot of conditions attached, what we call neoliberal policies. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, goes in with its economic hitmen. I was one of them once, uh, and uh, says, hey, listen, you've got, you've got to lower taxes on the rich and cut out some of your services to, to everybody else, uh, your social services, cut back on education, healthcare, and other social services, privatize things, and don't have any government regulations. That's trickle-down economics, which is, which is also known as neoliberal economics. So we impose these, these mandates. China doesn't do that. China makes a big point, and we're not going to interfere with your government at all. You can do what you want to do. We're making you this loan. Both countries go in and say, hey, you know, if you want your country to prosper, accept these loans from us, the United States or China, and hire our companies, American companies or Chinese companies, to build big infrastructure projects in your country, uh, hydroelectric dams, uh, roads, highways, industrial parks. These are things that primarily help the wealthy people, those who own the big industries, those who own businesses. Uh, and uh, they actually hurt most of everybody else because money's diverted from healthcare and social services, education, other such things uh, to pay the interest on the debt. In the end, the debt can't be repaid. So whichever country it is, the United States or China goes in and says, hey, since you can't pay your debt, give us your collateral. And the collateral that's been part of the loan is their resources, uh, copper, lithium, cobalt, oil, whatever sell those to our corporations real cheap without any environmental or social regulations. But the difference is China's not demanding to get involved in a country's politics and its, 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 its uh, governmental structure. The United States often does. Another big difference well, is... So let me just, uh, John, before we go on, um, for the 1% the of people who haven't come across your work before, you might just define what an economic hitman is so that we, we're on solid ground here. Sure. Basically, what, what we do is identify a country with resources our corporations covet, like oil or copper or lithium, whatever, arrange a huge loan to that country from, in the case of the United States, the World Bank or its sister organizations. In the case of China, it's the BRICS Bank or AIID Bank, their banks. And that money, though, has to be used to hire corporations that make big profits building infrastructure projects. Like I said, uh, electrical power grid systems, uh, highways and ports and, and industrial parks and on and on. Uh, and uh, the, so 
the beneficiaries of this, these loans really are our corporations that make big profits, and then the wealthy people who own the industries that benefit from the infrastructure. Um, and I will mention one other thing in here, and, and that is that um, we can show statistically that the economy grows when you do this. This is the justification. Invest in these projects, hire our companies to do them, and the economy will grow. John, it does. You're presenting, so you're presenting the World Bank, for example, which generally gets a mixed press, but you're, you're, you're presenting it as some sort of instrument, some sort of weapon of the U.S. government. Is, is that fair? And in that sense, is it equivalent to the central Chinese bank that lends African countries now and invests in their, uh, in their overseas uh, political and economic strategy? It's, I would say that the World Bank and its sister organizations are uh, tools of big corporations uh, that profess to be American corporations, although many of them don't pay taxes. So it's kind of hard to actually say that they benefit America. Uh, and the Chinese banks benefit the big Chinese corporations. And many of those are to at least 50% or a little bit more than 50% owned by the government. So there's a different kind of relationship there. But essentially, it's, it's very similar. The big banks provide these loans to these countries to hire the, the corporations from those countries to build infrastructure. And it shows the economy grows. But the, the, the clever thing here is that GDP, gross domestic product, which is how we measure the economic growth, really measures what, big cor what the corporations are doing, what the wealthy are doing. It doesn't measure what the majority of the people are doing because they are a very, very small part of the uh, overall economy. Even, Andrew, if you take the United States, three individuals have as much wealth as half the population. Yeah, and, and that's a message. I mean, there's no controversy there. We've done many shows on that, but you're taking this a step further. Now, I don't want to speak on behalf of cold warriors like Isaac Stonefish, but I'm guessing if he was here, he would say, well, John, there is a huge difference between the U.S. and the Chinese government in the sense that, and you even touched on this, is that the, the Chinese state is, is way more powerful. It puts uh, one of the headlines today uh, in the FT, for example, is the disappearance of a, a dealmaker called Bao Fan in China has, has cast chill across the Chinese tech sector. We may not like Mark Zuckerberg, but he hasn't disappeared, or Elon Musk. We don't put these people in jail, or certainly the American government doesn't put these people in jail. Isn't there a profound difference between the Chinese economic system and the American one? Yes, uh, there, there's, a, there's a difference in, in terms of ownership of business, which is primarily which is the government's very deeply involved in China. In the United States, the government supports big business, but doesn't actually have ownership in it for the most part. But, you know, I'm looking at this, Andrew, from the perspective of countries that are buying into China's model. And yeah. most, of the, most of the lower income countries are doing this now. Uh, last year, 2022, China invested more money in lower income countries than the rest of the world combined. And it was four times as much as the United States, which was number two. China's making huge investments in these countries. And... Uh, if you're the leader of one of these countries, you look at China and you say, well, over the over a period of 30 years, China had economic growth of uh, that averaged almost 10% a year. The United States has never had that. 
And you said you look at China, you say China brought 700 million people out of dire poverty, more than the rest of the world combined. And you can we can think all that we want about what's going on with, you know, people being put in prison in China and so on and so forth. But if you're the leader of a third world country, I prefer the word lower income country, um, you have to look at that model as being a very successful one. And yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we acknowledge. I don't mean we're debating the success or not. We we did a show with the Wall Street Journal reporter Lisa Lin. She's the co-author of a book called "Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control." And she argued that one of the reasons why um, China is investing so aggressively overseas is because uh, they want to sell countries in Africa surveillance technology made in China. Is, is this part of your narrative, John? Sure, of course. China's, China's goal is the same as that of the United States, and that is world hegemony, to control markets, to sell products overseas, and to gain the resources from overseas. What I'm saying is that that was my job, was to make that happen. And uh, that's what economic hitmen do. China has learned from my successes and those of other U.S. Economic hitmen and our failures, and they're beating us at this game. They're doing a, a more efficient job at it. Uh, they they basically taken over the lower income countries in many many ways, and they've done some horrible things in some of those countries. They built a huge dam in Ecuador that's that's filled riddled with holes because they built it on a fault line next to an active volcano. I'm not promoting the way China's doing this. What I'm trying to say, Andrew, is that if you're the leader. Uh, or income country, you have to look at this very, very seriously. And also you have to understand that in many of these countries, the United States has a pretty bad history. Uh, well, I was in the Peace Corps in Latin America in the late 60s, early 70s during the Vietnam War and Latin American young people were terribly opposed to what we were doing in Vietnam. They're terribly opposed today to what we're doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, they're afraid of us. And but should they be afraid of China? Maybe, but they're less afraid of China than they are of us, rightfully or wrongfully. I'm just. But are you, uh, I, I'm not entirely clear of, of your argument, John. On the one hand, um, you argue that China is bent on world hegemony, and particularly in terms of its investments overseas, there's some sort of coordinated effort by Chinese economic hitman to control these countries. And on the other hand, you're very critical of America. What are we supposed to do? Pr presumably. In, a, in an odd way, there are echoes of Cold War ideology in, in your thinking. But on the other hand, since you're arguing that America is just as bad as China, then what? Well, I wouldn't say just as bad well, as you're suggesting that both countries are, are bent, I'm quoting you, on world hegemony um, and that American economic hitmen are the model for Chinese ones. So there's not a huge, in your view, it doesn't seem to be a great deal of difference. Then who cares whether it's China or America in charge of the world? Well, I think what's the important thing here, Andrew, and, and we've, we've avoided this so far, but I think the, the most important point in, in my new book is that what both of these countries are doing is creating what we call a death economy, an economic system that in essence is polluting and consuming itself into extinction. It's based on the idea of maximizing short-term materialistic gains, short-term profits, short-term consumerism, and it's ravaging the earth. You know, we, we look at climate change and income inequality and species extinctions as problems, and they are, 
but they're not the problem. They're symptoms of a larger problem, which is this economic system that we've created. And uh, what's important here is to understand that both of these countries are participating in this. These two countries together combined produce almost half of the world's, the global economy and half of the world's pollution. And we need to understand that these two countries need to commit themselves to turning this around. We, the people, must insist upon this. And in, in the United States, we have tremendous influence over our corporations that we are consumers, investors, managers, workers, whatever we are, we do have influence over this. And more and more, we're beginning to exercise it. You know, we're, we're headed in the direction of creating what economists call a life economy, which is an economic system that pays people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to develop technologies that don't ravage the earth. Uh, and we've been moving in that direction, you know, solar, wind, electric cars, and so on and so forth. We need to move in, we need to continue and to recognize that the problem with the world is not really, uh, the threat to humanity on this planet is not coming from uh, this contention, this competition between China and the United States. The threat is coming from the idea that both of these countries, from the fact that both of these countries are producing this economic system that's destroying us. It's taking us to the precipice of self-destruction. It's, it's consuming in the short term all the resources it needs for the long term. It just is not viable in the long term. And both countries, China and the United States and many other countries, are continuing to push us toward that precipice. And so what we all need to understand is that's a failed system. We need to transform this death economy into a life economy. And it's going to take a concerted effort. My whole it mildly. I mean, I, I think that's a euphemism. Yeah. Effort. Um, John, I'm curious. We, we've done many shows on this and we, we've had many guests who are very much in sync with you on this, what you call this death economy. Um, but we've also had an, a lot of interesting conversations about how to address it, whether our democratic system is sufficient enough we've done we did two shows last week with experts who suggest that the problem is not that there isn't the technology now to deal with the death economy especially in terms of the environment but we need the political will in china when it comes to wind and solar and other technologies to address global warming there seems to be in an odd way more of a concerted effort because of the power of government is there a problem, John, leaving aside China with the American system? We did a show, for example, with Martin Wolf, the FT economics uh, writer, on the crisis of democratic capitalism. I don't suppose you're a big fan of capitalism in itself. But is the problem in America democracy? Oh, I think the or at problem... least the democratic system as it exists today. Well, certainly that's a problem. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dysfunctional, isn't it? And that's another thing I, I hear from countries uh, in Latin America and Africa and elsewhere that um, who wants a system like the United States has that doesn't really seem to be working. I was in Guatemala uh, several weeks ago, about a month ago, when, when we had in the United States a snafu in the, in the air system where planes just weren't flying. The whole system crashed. And I, and I was waiting for a group of people to come in to, to 
to go with me to visit some Mayan uh, teachers. And, uh, you know, their planes weren't flying. And the Guatemalans were saying, well, looks like the United States is the world's biggest banana republic without bananas. Uh, so there is this perception uh, that we are rather dysfunctional. And, and certainly our recent political system has, has discouraged people and said, well, we don't really want a system like that. Do we want a system like China? No, but China's not imposing their system on us. When they give us loans, they don't impose their system. The United States does try to impose its system. We don't want it. So, so that is another factor. But again, Andrew, I want to come back to these are all, you know, what you might call micro problems. The macro problem is this economic system that both of our countries are promoting. These two very, very powerful countries, China and the United States, we are promoting a death economy. And, and is this capitalism? I mean, would you call it capitalism? I mean, you dress it up in your own language of the economic hitman, but is, is essentially are you a critic of, of capitalism, of the, the, the corporate system that exists in the world today? The corporate capitalism system that exists in the world today, which I call predatory capitalism? Yes. You know, capitalism, that's a tricky word because my grandson's lemonade stand is a capitalistic system. It's not, capitalism is a system where the, means of production are not owned by the government. And uh, that's, that's certainly true. But in, in the United States, uh, in a way, uh, the government is owned by the big corporations who have tremendous influence over who gets into power in this country. Uh, so we've got, we've got this predatory form of capitalism that eats up its competition. True capitalism encourages competition. Our system does not. So it's a, it, and America has a Democratic president at the moment. I don't need me to tell you that, John, uh, Joe Biden. Are you suggesting that he is as much controlled by the, the corporations as the previous president, Donald Trump? Well, we know that nobody gets to a high office in the United States without a lot of money. And most of that money comes through campaign financing that comes through individuals who make their money from corporations or directly from corporations. We know that corporations have a tremendous amount of leverage through their lobbyists. You know, answer, I, you, you know the question I answered. I asked you about uh, asked about Joe Biden. I, I mean, that's a broad thesis that's been made about capitalism for two hundred years. How is Biden's policies being manipulated by the the, the large capitalist corporations? Uh, I, I, it's it's not clear to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but tell me. Well, I, I can't speak for Biden, Andrew. I, I can't speak for Biden directly. Well, you can well, speak for the current American regime and, and how it I can, I can speak for the American. I can speak for the American system. And our election process is based on pouring a lot of money into campaigns. And most of that money comes through corporations one way or another. But, but then coming back to Biden, how did that manifest itself in the last election? Biden came to power successfully, probably got a lot of money from corporations. How, how, how does that reveal itself? Yes, I'm sure he did get a lot of money from corporations or the owners of corporations. Yes, of course. So, but, but could you give me some examples of, of how that manifests itself in terms of economic American behavior, uh, his decisions, know. his policies? I don't know who gets access to Biden's office. I don't, I'm not privy to that information, Andrew. So no, I can't tell you who gets to walk in, who, who gets by the gatekeepers, who gets by the chief of staff, who gets in there to talk to Biden and tweak his ear and say, hey, I gave so many millions of dollars to your campaign and now I want you to do such and such and so and so. I don't know who has that access. I'm not privy to that. 
but I but I'm sure there are people that, that do know that. And I'm but sure is Biden in charge of the death system? I mean, he's made massive trillion do- tr- trillions of dollars of investment in a in a new kind of economy, a wind and solar economy. Is that um, something you approve of, or is that just a manifestation of the old system? I totally approve of that. Yes, I think that's the direction we need to move in. We need to uh, create these businesses that'll pay people to clean up pollution and to stop using fossil fuels. Uh, there's a tremendous amount that we can do along those lines. Uh, you know, people talk about well, we've got to cut back on growth. Well, we have to increase the growth of things that'll 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 uh, impact the life economy. That'll help us promote a life economy. So there's room for growth, there's room to hire people, there's room to pay people. And I think the program that Biden's come up with for, for solar and wind is, is, is a step in that direction. We need to move a lot further in that direction and a lot more quickly. In the American system, of course, we've got this problem of constant turmoil between Republicans and Democrats, which is unfortunate and it slows us down. But we're still, I think, moving forward. We've got benefit corporations, B corporations, the idea of conscious capitalism, uh, the Green New Deal. Uh, there's many, many reasons for us to believe, have hope and see that we are moving forward in these directions. And that's, that's, a, that's a path that we need to continue to take. And we need to, we need to run it and stop walking or jogging and just race down that path. John, it seems as if there are two John Perkins. There's obviously the John Perkins, who was the original economics hitman. But there's also the activist... John Perkins, the John Perkins who spends his time now making these arguments, going around the world. Um, What kind of new men or new man or new woman do we need? Are we talking about political activists, uh, Greta Thunberg, for example? Who who are the models in your mind for fixing the world that we've destroyed of this death capitalism? You know, I write in this new book, um, Andrew, that it, it's going to take all of us. It's, it's a change of consciousness. It's, it's, and it's happening that people are becoming That's awake. so vague, John. It's going to take all of us. You sound like, I don't know, you know it's not going to take all of us because at least 50 or 60% of Americans strongly disagree with you. Another 20 or 30 don't care. So you it's not going to take all of us. Andrew, you I mean, might in theory, but how are you going to convince all of us to get on board this thing? Andrew, you cut me off in the middle of the sentence. A change of consciousness, it's a critical mass, and I think we're, we've moved in this direction. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, back in, at, at, during this American Revolution, and his, historians have kind of uh, agreed with, with what Jefferson said. He said, you know, uh, this was back in 1774, he said, um, about a third of the people in, this, in, the, in America want to stay with, with England. A third of the people want to leave England and a third of the people don't know what they want. It's that third in the middle that we got to reach. And I think we're at a time like that now where we've got, there is a change of consciousness. And sure, it's, it's not the whole world by any means. It doesn't need to be the whole world, but it is happening. There's a change of consciousness. And I think in answer to your question, every one of us has a role to play. I outline in the book a, a process that we all can go through. And it starts with asking ourselves, each one of us individually asking, what is it that I want to do for the rest of my life? And I would say, I want to write books. I like writing books. I have a friend who's a carpenter who says, I want to work with my hands in wood. The second question is, how do I do this in a way that helps transform the death economy to a life economy? 
I'd say I, I want to write books that inspire people to do exactly that. My carpenter friend would say, I'm going to use only sustainable materials. And there's a whole series of more questions that we can ask. Yeah, I, I mean, I look, I'm, I'm not disagree. I mean, I'm, I'm in your camp, but I'm just, I'm still not convinced. Um, we did a show over the weekend with Roger Cohen, New York Times columnist and Affirming Flame, Meditations on Life and Politics. He talks in this book about the explosion of hate around the world. You see that all across the world. You see it in America. You see it with Ron DeSantis. You see it in so many different ways. So I just don't see where your much of your evidence is for this optimism. I mean, I, I wish I could share it, but but well, well, you Andrew, it's concrete Andrew, examples. Andrew, it's not an explosion. We had Hitler <laughs> back in the forties. In the in the 20s, we, we you know, I mean, this has always gone on. We, we had the incredible civil rights horrors in this country for many, many years. We had a civil war in this country. This is not an explosion of hate. Uh, if anything, uh, we, we've been moving away from that. There's less violence in the world today in general. Now we get this war in Ukraine that's changing, but there's, there's been less violence in general. You, the statistics that show this. Uh, and there's, there's definitely a consciousness change. <clears throat> I travel around the world. In recent years, I've done it more virtually than physically, but I continue now back to doing it physically. Everywhere I go, I find that people get it. They know there's climate change. They didn't a few years ago. And you talk about change. I mean, my God, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, who would have thought all the gender issues would have come to, to, to the fore in the United States would have been changed? Same-sex marriages, transgender issues. We've made huge changes. People can change. And we found during the pandemic that we can change and we can even enjoy the change. So this idea of negativity, that we're at the worst of all times. No, no, no. My grandmother said, you know, she was sure the world was going to end with World War One. She was sure the world was going to end with the 1918 flu pandemic. She was sure the world was going to end with World War Two and the nuclear bomb. We've gone through this over and over. The idea of an explosion of violence is, is absurd. It's not, it, it, or it's a constant explosion maybe, but no, uh, I would say that all in all, we are drawing closer together. We are now uh, in a competition with China. We're not in war with China. Russia and Ukraine are at war and we're involved in that, but not with China, who's the other big power. This is not a war unless we want to make it a war. We can do that, but why would we want to do that? I've spent time in China. I taught at a very big MBA program in China. The young Chinese people want to work with us. They invited me there to help them understand how can we work with the United States so that we don't have the kind of pollution that we grew up in? How can we help the world develop itself better economically in a way that's socially and environmentally responsible? They've gone through the opposite. They had tremendous economic development at a horrible cost socially and environmentally. They don't want that for their kids. And I'm seeing this in Latin America. You see it in Africa. In the Middle East, Europe, all over. People are, people are waking up to the problem. Will we wake up in time? Will, will, our, will we be able to get our leaders to change quickly enough? Well, those, these are important questions. But uh, there is a change of consciousness going on. I, I, I take your point, John, on these are the worst of times. And I, I'm not sure um, Roger Cohen said that. He simply said that these are dark times. But there is a been a, a a sharp shift away from democracy, uh, from Turkey and Philippines, obviously Russia, Hungary, perhaps the United States, Brazil. 
So all the places you're going where maybe people are cheerful and optimistic, nonetheless, their political systems are in one kind of crisis or another. Do we need um, democracy to, to, to make what you want happen? Or is there an alternative political system to enable this? Well, if you look at some of the happiness figures, and they're not always trustworthy, but their indexes uh, about that, it's not necessarily that the countries that claim to be democracies where people are the happiest. It's where people feel that they're making progress toward having a better way of life. And sometimes that's in, that's in places like Singapore. Um, and it's in other places where, where democracy is not the predominant political issue. Uh, you know, and as I said earlier, I think uh, in Latin America, people look at us and say, if the United States is a democracy, we don't want it because it isn't working. Uh, I love the idea of democracy. I've, I've been a student of the American Revolution for years. I'm deeply appreciative of much of the literature that came out of Jefferson and Samuel Adams and, and uh, Tom Paine and others. But it, it, our form of democracy doesn't seem to be working very well. So, so are you suggesting that maybe the Singapore model of benign authoritarianism to be kind to it that that might work that that might be the fix i, I think it's probably different for different countries and different cultures what, what, what you're works. avoiding the question there john i mean oh, that's yeah. what you mean each country some countries are more suitable to democracy and some like singapore are more suitable suitable to authoritarianism that's a dangerous argument isn't it why do you say that well it smacks in some way of the old European view of the rest of the world is some people simply aren't up to our democratic system or down perhaps well I, I think you're I think you're oversimplifying things Andrew what I'm saying is that different cultures have different needs and different ways of looking at the world we've tried to impose democracy in Afghanistan we tried to impose it in Iraq we've tried to impose it in many places that they've never had it in their whole history Maybe they're not ready for it. I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's not my job. And that, to me, that's, that's not the big question. The big question is, can all of these systems work together to create a life economy? Can we save ourselves? Let's consider if there was a UFO hovering above us and the aliens were swarming out of it to attack us, I think we'd all come together, Chinese and Americans and everybody else. We'd come together to fight the aliens. Well, we've alienated ourselves. We have defined ourselves, human beings, as apart from, not a part of nature. We have said that we have the right to exploit nature to beyond all limits. We, we are the aliens. Let's admit it. Let's say it's not human beings that are the aliens. It's our attitude toward what it means to be successful human beings. Our attitude of extreme materialism, consumption and short-term profits, short-term Let's change that and let's say, hey, let's all come together to recognize that that's an alien philosophy. We need a new philosophy. And I think it's happening, Andrew. People are beginning to understand that there are long-term consequences of burning fossil fuels. There are long-term consequences of extreme economic growth when it, when it is measured in terms of... Well, look, Andrew, no, I take your point. I hope you're right. Um, you say people need to come together. People can be watching this and say, I agree with John. We do need to come together. He's right on alienation. He's right on the environment. He's right on economic hitmen. How do they do it concretely? Well, when you see a common enemy, it's, you know, look, look at what happened after World War II. No, Germany. No, answer my question. In, I'm asking a concrete question, John. How do people do it now? How, how do they do what? How do they come together? Well, in the case of 
what, what I was trying to say is in the case of two of terrible enemies, Germany and Japan, the United States, uh, we came together to, 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 for the Cold War. We've seen European countries come together uh, to help defend uh, Ukraine. So when we can see that there's a common enemy, we find ways to come together. And I'm not, I'm not sitting in a position to tell Biden and Xi how, how they come together. But the fact of the matter is people do, and people with very different points of view, competitors, even enemies, come together to fight a common enemy. It's, it's happened throughout history. And right now we have a common enemy. It's the death economy. And it's an attitude right. that, that you know, I, I take your point. So do we need an let's end here. Do we need a, a new party, an anti-death economy party? Political that, party. <laughs> people come together politically, whether you like it or not, John. That's how the world works. Well, yes, it, it, but you know, the Republicans and the Democrats can both agree that climate is changing and we've got to do something to stop it. Uh, I would love to see. <laughs> Another party, a death economy, a life economy party, but I don't think it's going to happen in the United well, States. They have them in Europe. They call them the Greens. Maybe that's yeah. what we need in America. Well, but, you know, we do not have a very good history of third parties uh, doing very well. Let's see what happens. I think you should form one, Andrew. <laughs> that would be wonderful. You and I together, John. We can. That's not my job. I write, I write books. You go ahead and get in politics, but I want to write books and, and, and present ideas and show what's happened in the past and the path that we've walked along that is no longer taking us toward a, toward a good future and how we have to change that. And, and in the book, I talk about you know, what individuals need to do. I, as an individual, define myself as a writer. That's my job, is to present these things and write them. You are, are a host of this, uh, of this show, and if you want to form a political party, that would be your job. So, and everybody out there, has a role to play, whether you're a parent, you, you have a role to play, maybe with just one other kid, or you may go on on a global basis. I, I go into detail in the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, third edition, of, of how every one of us, doesn't matter what your role in life is, uh, you have a role to play in this and define for yourself what it is you most want to do for the rest of your life. And how can you do this in a way that'll facilitate the transformation from a death economy to a life economy because that'll make everybody happier when we're when we're working toward a bigger goal when we're committed towards something that's bigger than ourselves we're always happier 